Marriage is an endangered species. Till death do us part is said at weddings every week. And I remember when I was doing about one wedding a week and going through those vows with couples. Till death do us part. And yet, those vows are broken regularly. I heard about a woman who married four men. Uh, the first husband was a banker, very wealthy guy. A second husband uh, that she married was an actor from Hollywood. The third husband was a minister. And the fourth was a funeral director. What an odd lineup. And she was asked, why did you marry those men? And she said, it's quite simple. I married number one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, <laughs> and four to go. Okay, that's out of the way. I truly want to be sensitive this morning about what is going to be shared. I want to share it in extreme love because I recognize that some here may be going through a divorce or have recently gone through a divorce, and certainly experiencing still the pain of that moment that lasts much more than a moment but a lifetime. So I want to be sensitive. At the same time, I don't want to skirt the issue. I'm glad Jesus didn't. But that he dealt with it here, even in the Sermon on the Mount, head on. I find that there's a lot of people that are confused about marriage and divorce, even Christians who are confused about it. And frankly, many Christian churches who would rather ignore it or minimize it rather than dealing with it. In fact, there's even in our culture, it's so prevalent that there's lighthearted songs written about it, all the way back to the 60s, I think, when Paul Simon wrote that 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, right? You just slip out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan, don't need to be coy, Roy, just get yourself free. So goes the song, but it's not that easy. Because even when you get yourself free, pain follows for years to come. Listen to this letter. It's an unsigned letter. It was sent to the uh, Grand Rapids Press in Michigan, published by them. This person writes, I'm going through a divorce, and it's no picnic. I have two children that I don't see often enough. I'm alone most of the time, and time is all I have. If you're married, live it up, but live it up with your spouse and not someone else's. The heartbreak of losing years of your life, your wife and your children nearly kills you. It's as if you have died. Well, I'll promise you this morning we're going to stick to the scriptures and hopefully deal with this issue in love and with compassion. This is what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two verses in Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. And basically, what we're going to do is make a contrast between the popular views of marriage and divorce and the proper view of marriage and divorce. We'll contrast that which is cultural with that which is scriptural. Look with me at these verses. Furthermore, verse 31, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now those are two verses, very short section. But there's two other scriptures that maybe now would be the good time to mark in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 24, because we're going to look at that in a moment. And Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew 5, Deuteronomy 24, and Matthew 19. I'm going to ask you in just a few moments to turn there with me and look at them. And once again, I'm going to ask for your full attention on this one this morning. Let's contrast the popular views with the proper view. Allow me to take you back in time to the New Testament era and just before the New Testament era so that you get a cultural backdrop of what was going on in the thinking of minds at the time. What was marriage like among the ancient peoples? Let's take the Greeks, first of all. In the Greek culture, it was a male-dominated culture for the most part. Women basically had no rights. Uh, They were living in seclusion most of the time. Women were not allowed to be out on the streets alone. The Greek culture demanded the strictest moral purity of the women in that culture. However, for the men, they were allowed to have mistresses. It was accepted. Greek men had mistresses, concubines, courtesans, and wives. A woman in the Greek culture could never divorce her husband for any reason. A man, on the other hand, could simply walk up to his wife with two witnesses and verbally dismiss her, and it was over. Now let's move forward just a little bit from the Greek culture to the Roman culture, because that's sort of the backdrop in the secular world that the New Testament was written in. The Roman culture was a culture of shifting values when it came to morality. This is what I mean. For the first 520 years of recorded Roman history, there is not one single recorded case of a divorce. Isn't that amazing? 520 years, not one single recorded divorce in Roman history. The first recorded divorce, there may have been them, but we just don't have them recorded. The first one recorded was in the year 234 B.C., by a fellow by the name of Spurius Carvilius Ruga, who divorced his wife because his wife was infertile and couldn't produce children for him. He left her and remarried. Now that begs a question. And the question is this. What caused the change? Why can you have that many years of not a single recorded divorce, then all of a sudden there is a divorce, and then it starts spreading like wildfire, and it did. This is how I figure it. The Romans conquered the Greeks militarily, but the Greeks conquered the Romans morally. Yeah, the Romans took over the Greeks, but they assimilated the Greek value system into their culture. And pretty soon they became very Greek-like in their thinking, and it got bad. Seneca wrote, Women were married to be divorced and were divorced to be married. And he even tells of some women who started marking their their adult years by the names of their husbands. They had so many. One historian tells us that there was a woman who was married eight times within five years. And there was even a cynical Roman jest that said, 
Marriage brings only two happy days, the day when the husband first clasps his wife to his breast and the day when he lays her in the tomb. Well, it goes without saying that divorce was pretty high among the Romans after a period of time. So that's the Greeks and the Romans, the Greco-Roman culture. That's the cultural backdrop of the New Testament. Let's move into the setting at hand. What was marriage and divorce like among the Jews? Well, theoretically, no nation on earth at that time had a higher picture of marriage than the Jewish nation. In fact, it was considered a sin for an adult Jewish male not to marry somebody, except one reason would allow him to stay single, and that is that he would be devoted to the study of the Torah, of the Scriptures. But any other reason was unacceptable. If a man refused to marry and have children, the rabbi said he has lessened the image of God in this world and has slain his posterity. Why? Because he's failed to keep God's commandment, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they had a high ideology of marriage and they looked down on divorce and again, theoretically. They had all sorts of lofty sayings about divorce and marriage. Here's one of them. One rabbi said, even the very altar in the temple sheds tears when a man divorces the wife of his youth. Wow! What a flowery thing to say. But words are cheap. Because the fact of the matter is, they figured out a way to so twist the scriptures as to give them an allowance for divorce, as you will see in just a moment. There was a problem passage. Uh, Turn with me now. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. By the way, Deuteronomy 24 is the only Old Testament passage of a divorce procedure. And the rabbis were very unclear as to what it meant. You'll see why. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife. Then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now we're going to try to uncover the meaning of that in a moment. But let me tell you, the rabbis were unclear as to what that passage actually, actually meant. There were two schools of thought as to what this meant. One was the more conservative school, and one was the more liberal school. On the conservative side, you had a rabbi by the name of Shammai, who believed very conservatively that uncleanness in this passage must refer to moral unchastity, sexual immorality. On the other side, you had the more liberal mindset, that of Rabbi Hillel, 
who broadened uncleanness to the widest possible sense. And this is how he interpreted it. If your wife spoils your dinner by putting too much salt in the food, that's uncleanness. If she is spotted out in public with her head uncovered, that's uncleanness. If she's talking with men in the streets, if she is quarrelsome, argumentative, or if she speaks disrespectfully of her husband's parents, all of those are unclean and open now to divorce by the husband. Well, that's pretty liberal, especially when you take Shammai, who said sexual immorality, and this guy who said could be anything. Well, it got worse. As time went on, another rabbi by the name of Akiba said, even if the husband finds a woman who's more beautiful than his present wife, that's grounds for dismissal. He has found some uncleanness in her. Question, which do you think was the most popular interpretation? Shammai or Hillel among men? It would be Hillel. It would be the second one. And so... The issue became legality. If I can produce a certificate of divorce, it's biblical, it's fine, because it's legal. By the way, the writ of divorce read thus, Let it be from me thy writ of divorce and letter of dismissal and deed of liberation that thou mayest marry whatsoever man thou wilt. Because of this, because of this idea and interpretation, there was rampant, no-fault divorce at the time of Jesus Christ when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now we understand the question in Matthew 19 that the Pharisees asked Jesus. Now we have enough background to understand when they came to him and they said, uh, Lord, Master, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They had been listening to Hillel. To them, it was just a matter of producing the legal certificate. So we have the Greeks, we have the Romans, we have the Jews. What about the Americans? Let's get a little background because we're applying it here to our lives. If divorce was rampant in Greek and Roman and even Jewish times, you bet it's very popular these days. You saw the little video clip. The United States Census Bureau said divorce is up 700% in the last 100 years. This is what it looks like. In 1920, there was one divorce for every seven marriages. In 1960, one divorce for every four marriages. In 1972, one for every three marriages. Today, it's about one in every two to three marriages. Folks, on an average day in the United States of America, there are 3,197 couples who end their marriages by divorce. That's what's going on. So those are the popular views. What about the proper view? Well, we read it. Keep that marker in Deuteronomy 24, and let me read what we just read in Matthew 5. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, porneia is the Greek term, a single word, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. It's the contrast between popular views versus the proper view. The cultural view versus scriptural view. Well, let's examine this now. Deuteronomy 24 is that problem passage. What exactly does it mean? Well, 
first step back from it for a moment and understand God's view of marriage and divorce generally. You know what Malachi 2.16 tells us? God hates divorce. So, you're never going to find a scripture that says, if you don't like your wife, just dump her. If you're looking for that scripture, you're not going to find it. It's not in there. So Deuteronomy 24 is not advocating divorce. That would be inconsistent with the rest of the scripture, like Matthew 5, like Mark 10, like Matthew 19, like 1 Corinthians 7. That would be inconsistent with the bulk of scriptural teaching on it. Deuteronomy 24 is not advocating divorce. In fact, the primary issue is not divorce. The primary issue isn't even the certificate of divorce. The primary issue of Deuteronomy 24 is forbidding a man to marry his former spouse who remarried and then subsequently divorced again. That's the entire issue. It's a series of conditional clauses followed by a summary statement. If this happens and this happens and this happens, then that can't happen. That's how it's written. But go back to that word uncleanness in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and the conditional clauses continue. What does that mean? What is uncleanness? It's obviously something improper, impure about her behavior. The literal translation of the word uncleanness is this, the nakedness of a thing, the nakedness of a thing. Some rabbis believed it referred to indecent exposure. The Talmud translates it if he finds something obnoxious in her. But that doesn't give us enough information. Alfred Edersheim, the Hebrew scholar, says it describes a poor reputation. But now listen carefully. Whatever it is, it can't refer to adultery. It can't refer to sexual immorality, and here's why. What was the punishment of sexual immorality in the Old Testament? It wasn't divorce. It was stoning to death. So whatever it is we don't know, it must have been some promiscuity short of actual adultery itself, short of committing the act of adultery. Now, again... The issue isn't what the uncleanness was. It's just that whatever it was, it didn't warrant a divorce. And here's why. Because verse 4 uses the term defiled. Notice. Then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Question, how did she get defiled? She got defiled by her first husband who divorced her for not the right reason and then she subsequently remarried. Her husband, the first one, is at fault for that defilement. So, what is the text doing? It's not advocating divorce. It's protecting the woman from her former spouse. It's setting up parameters around that holy institution of matrimony to protect the woman. Because somebody could come along and say, well, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to divorce my wife. I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce. And if it doesn't work out for me, it doesn't work out for her, I'll convince her to dump her second husband and we'll get back together. And the text is saying, you better think twice before you get that kind of a divorce. That's wrong. But here's the issue 
in Matthew 5. By the time we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Deuteronomy 24, in their thinking, was a scripture that said, you can divorce your wife for any reason as long as you give her a certificate. So that's the background. That's the meaning. Okay, go now to Matthew chapter 19. I know it. I'm going around the block to get next door, but we've got to cover this. Matthew chapter 19. I think it will all come into play as you see it here. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Did you notice their wording? For just any reason? That's their view of divorce. They were following the teaching of Rabbi Hillel. Notice Jesus' answer. He answered and said to them, Have you not read? I love that. I love that. Here's Jesus saying to these Bible scholars, You guys ever read that book you carry around? Don't you ever read it? Have you never read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? See what Jesus is doing? He's taken them back before the law, before Deuteronomy, to God's original intention for marriage, saying, let's go back to the beginning. At the beginning, divorce was never in God's mind when he created marriage. And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is to be intimate. Marriage is to be permanent. By the way, the Hebrew rendering of they shall be joined together, you could translate it this way. They will be glued inseparably. If you took two pieces of paper and you glued them together and let the glue dry, you essentially have a single unit. Now you might say, well, that's not true. You actually have two pieces of paper that are very close. Okay, then try to separate them. You can't do it without damage. Oh, you might be able to do it, but I'll tell you what, those two pieces of paper will not be the same when you're done separating them. The two shall become one flesh. Let's go on. Verse 7, the conversation continues. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Do you hear that? Do you see how they have twisted Deuteronomy 24 in making that a commandment through Moses to simply give your wife a certificate of divorce if you find something you don't like in her? Moses Moses didn't command anything. That was a divine concession, not a divine commandment. But they made it a commandment. So Jesus answers, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted, not commanded, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. 
Now, having read that, let's go back and finish up and conclude in Matthew chapter 5. We've gone all the way around the block to get next door. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now let's frame that. You've heard that it has been said. You've been listening to Hillel. You've been listening to Rabbi Akiba. You've been reading the Targums of Palestine. And all of those tell you all you have to do is produce the legality, hand out the certificate. In fact, you have even made it a command to do so. But I tell you. In other words, what I say is just the opposite. I'm going all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the original plan of God from, from the creation, and I'm telling you I don't allow divorce for any reason except one. And here's the core of the passage, and that is sexual immorality, porneia, which means any illicit sexual intercourse. That's the only allowable reason for a Christian to initiate a divorce. Jesus gives that, and it's very, very plain. Now, one of the reasons Jesus is, is taking his Sermon on the Mount in this direction, and, and I'm now going back to verse 27. We covered that last time as we plowed our way through this sermon. You have heard that it's been said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look upon a woman, we covered that last time. So here's, here's this, this Jewish audience, especially in the background I'm picturing the Jewish elite, the scribes and the Pharisees who are priding themselves because they don't commit adultery. They're going, I'm a good guy. I don't commit adultery. And Jesus said, actually, you do. Every time you lust after a woman, you're an adulterer. And every time you unlawfully divorce your wives by simply giving a certificate because you don't like her, you are spreading adultery all over the place. Now, I want to conclude this very heavy, message this morning and bring it up to a lighter note. I want to give you three things to walk away with. First of all, don't accommodate. Don't accommodate the world's thinking. We live in a culture surrounded by a mindset that says, oh, come on, get off of this. This is old stuff. Uh, the new style is to be happy. And if you're not happy in the relationship, get rid of the relationship. Don't you dare accommodate to the world around you. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love how Phillips puts it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. So say no to accommodation. Second thing to walk away with is say no to condemnation. Now I'm speaking to married couples here. Your marriage is great, but you may be sitting around people this morning who have had the pain of a divorce. And I know the Bible says God hates divorce. But I'm telling you, God loves divorced people. God loves divorced people. And frankly, a lot of people come to church and come to Christ out of the pain of a divorce where they can feel accepted and loved by people around them and rebuilt in their lives. 
And the same God who said, I hate divorce, said, I will forgive their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. So be careful at pointing fingers. You might say, but divorce is a sin. I agree. That's precisely why it's forgivable. That's exactly why it's forgivable. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chiefest. So say no to accommodation. Say no to condemnation. Say yes to sanctification. This is what I mean. At whatever point you find yourself in your life right now, because I know some of you are feeling a bit uneasy about this message this morning perhaps. You look back in your life and you recognize after reading the scripture, I've blown it in this area. Then start from here today. Obedience begins at the point where you recognize your failure. This is where obedience starts. And though divorce is permissible, let me also say it's not mandatory. You might say, good, I'm glad you covered that this morning, Skip, because I'm going to divorce my husband. He has been unfaithful. That is permissible, but I will tell you it's not mandatory. I'll tell you about another option. It's called reconciliation and forgiveness. I know that sounds hard, but can I tell you the story of a couple friends of mine? I worked with one of them at Westminster Community Hospital 23 years ago. I saw them a few weeks ago up in Costa Mesa. She, at that time, was married to her husband. He was an unbeliever. He, the unbeliever, committed adultery in the relationship and got that girl pregnant. Then he said to his Christian wife, I'm going to divorce you. And she said, let's work it out. In fact, honey, I will raise that child in our home. And she hung on even after they were divorced for weeks and months and over a year. And I remember her coming to work and she's saying, this is so painful, but I believe God's going to restore our relationship. You know, just about everybody she knew, in fact, a lot of her Christian friends said, get over it. Get a life. Get a new life. Get remarried. And she goes, I don't think the Lord wants me to do that. I believe God's going to restore our marriage. About a year after that, I had the privilege of standing over here in Newport Beach and remarrying Kathy and Vincent together once again after a full reconciliation, and they're married today, bearing fruit for the kingdom. She could have divorced her husband, and she said, Lord, I believe there's another way, the way of reconciliation and forgiveness. What a testimony. What a wonderful thing. Well, I recognize that uh, it's been a tough time together. And um, I apologize for that in one sense. And in the other sense, I'm grateful that we were able to just get honest with the Scripture, as Jesus did, as Jesus did, as Jesus did.